Hello. It's Gail. Hey, Mary. How are you doing? Good. I guess this works then. Yeah, I'm so excited. I've been trying to record it, and I was looking at different ways of doing it, and finally found a way to record it. So is that Scott? I see Scott joined us, so that's very exciting. I guess uh, we'll wait till it turns 7 o'clock. <laughs> and then I can introduce you. And thank you so much for joining me on this brave new adventure. I hear this is where all the young people are congregating. And I feel like they don't have the information that you and I have. And they need to know what's going on and be informed. So I'm very excited. All right, it is now seven o'clock and I want to welcome everybody to Write in DC's first clubhouse about the First Amendment. And I'm so excited to have as our guest today, Mary Rice Hassan. And she is a dear friend from a long time. We have uh, been able to kind of run in the same circles in Washington, D.C. with conservatives and women political commentators. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Gail. It's wonderful to be talking with you, especially about something like First Amendment, which is uh, hot, not just a hot topic, but it, it's it's got such deep roots for our country and for everything we believe. That's right, and I thought how appropriate, and I didn't do this on purpose, but our discussion is right during Holy Week, the most important week for Christians around the world, and our country has been such a beacon of religious freedom, and I think a lot of us are seeing the threats not only faced by Christians in American politics, but also by people of faith of all different religions, and you've certainly worked on that. It's interesting. I uttered uh, the Gallup poll that came out. I think it was Gallup. It may have been Pew, but talking about the decline of religiosity in uh, America, and that for the first time we have half of people in our society saying that they belong to a church, in other words, just slightly more than half, would no longer consider themselves to be affiliated with a particular church. And I think that has consequences. I, I think, you know, certainly people have to find their own way and everyone's got their own spiritual journey. But I think as our society has um, lost a, a cohesive sense of being even just believers, respecting the pluralism of, of various beliefs. But as that has declined, I think it, it we're also seeing a generation coming up that has much less familiarity with religion and therefore less perhaps intuitive understanding why people hold their beliefs so strongly, what it means to have a conscientious objection and things like that. I, I see a relationship between the two. I don't know about you. Absolutely. And I think that's why it's, it's so important to reach out to people where they are. And you're an expert on this because you are an attorney like I am, and you're the Kate O'Byrne Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And you're the director of the Catholic Women's Forum, which is a network of Catholic professional women and scholars. And I want you to share with us a little bit later about the project that you've co-founded, the Person and Identity Project. And apparently it's an initiative that equips parents and faith-based institutions with the resources they need to counter gender ideology and promote the truth about the human person. And you have seven grown children. I have six children, uh, only two of whom I think I can count as grown. <laughs> and uh, I'm still I'm a little behind you in, in the process, but I think you and I have a lot of uh, overlap on the issues that we're trying to educate people about. Okay. And I think when we think about the American experience, I think the Bill of Rights 
undergirds so many of the things that makes our culture unique. And tonight we're really going to jump into this First Amendment issue, which there this was the one question that Amy Coney Barrett was tripped up on. I don't know if you noticed this in her hearing uh, when Senator Ben Sass asked her, I think he asked her, what are the five components of the First Amendment? And she, if I remember correctly, thought of four of them. And uh, she was a little surprised by his question because it wasn't like uh, it was supposed to be cold calling on pe on people like <laughs> law school and he was supposed to be friendly, but it was it was pretty funny. So the the two issues that we're going to talk about tonight are free speech and freedom of religion. And you and I talked a little bit ahead of this conversation about a really interesting case dealing with a university and a man of faith, a man of belief, and the struggle he, he has undergone and the court essentially r ruling, at least on, you know, at the level that the case is at now on his behalf. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Sure, sure. I, I think it's a, a kind of a bellwether. It's, it's very interesting that the court ruled the way that it did. And, and so just to clarify, to bring people up to speed, this was a case filed by a university professor who was alleging that the university that employed him, which was Shawnee State University, was violating his uh, First Amendment rights because the underlying factual circumstances were those. He was teaching a course and there was a student in his class who he apparently did not realize was identifying as transgender. He referred to the student by calling him sir or mister, which was his practice in terms of how he spoke to students in his class. They were mister, miss, ms. And this particular student, a male, came up to the professor afterwards and said, I'm transgender, I identify as female, and, and I want you to call me by feminine pronouns. And the professor did not want to do that. He wanted to be respectful, but he uh, he had a number of reasons why he didn't want to. One was just a plain old free speech. Right. It's, from his own conviction, he believed in the difference between male and female, and pronouns have a meaning. They take the place of the noun. So if he's talking to someone who's a male, he wants to just use the male pronouns, the, the ones that would, would match someone who is male. And so just as a matter of free speech, he didn't want to be compelled. And that's right. an important concept, that compelled speech. Uh, he didn't want to be compelled to say something he didn't think was true. But then also from a religious standpoint, he held these beliefs as a matter of uh, faith as well. And so he didn't want to be a messenger, so to speak, of what he viewed as an ideology that deeply conflicted with his beliefs. So the, the uh, student ended up filing a complaint and he felt like he was being punished by the university. They would not even allow him to register his own belief on his syllabus. Right. Words, he couldn't just, it wasn't just about what he said. He couldn't even put on his own syllabus his beliefs and the, and the fact that he was being compelled to comply with this pronoun policy. So he ended up suing and he initially lost, but the case went up to the uh, Sixth Circuit and they held for him. It was, um, it was a very strong opinion. It just reaffirmed a professor in the classroom still retains the right to speak, that that's part of the academic enterprise, and the university has no right to compel ideological conformity. And so I think that's a key concept. Isn't that so fascinating to you also, you know, as a lawyer, as a mom, as a grandmom, and you think about colleges and universities, they are supposed to be the marketplace for ideas. And there's this idea of academic freedom that once a professor gets tenure, that they're not going to be fired for taking an unpopular view. And how can how can young people learn about all these controversial issues if they're just 
forced into a stultifying uh, conformity of one viewpoint on every you know hot topic. So I think you have, like you said, the compelled, the compulsion issue, the academic freedom issue, and then the faith issue. So I, I think that's really fascinating where the students desire to be called by a different pronoun is the student asserting one viewpoint and one right and the professor has an alternative viewpoint and also a right not to be compelled to essentially violate his conscience and it seemed like from the facts of the case the professor said well i i just won't you know i'll just use last names uh -huh. or i'd be happy as long as i could put something on my syllabus that that where i could say what my opinion on this was so he wasn't being a so, sort of doctrinaire or you know sticking his heels in the mud he was trying to respect the rights of the student but uh -huh. not give up his own rights Right, and I think um, it's interesting, as you point out, that it was the student who was seeking to compel the professor's speech, because how often, I, I think, at least certainly when I was in college and law school, um, I, I think people, students had the viewpoint that they were they were always trying to press the limits. Right. They were trying to be more expansive, open up the conversation, be more outrageous, be more... Uh, sort of new and avant-garde in terms of, of the topics they were going to broach, et cetera. So I, I recall people pushing the boundaries the other way in the university environment to be allowed to present a controversial play or, or, or things like that. And this seems to be going in reverse. Right, exactly. Like the vagina monologues. That was a huge controversy if they could show that on college campuses. And it seems like we have completely flipped where the students are trying to uh, really get the professors to conform to this woke ideology. Yeah, yeah. And it, apart from just speech, it, it raises some questions about uh, one, just the general tenor of the academic environment, you know, is it a place where you can actually have discussions? Or has this effort to avoid offending people or avoid treading into uh, contested areas, is, has that become, uh, is that really having such a chilling effect that, that the conversations themselves, the, the exploration of ideas, in the university text is being limited, really truncated in a, in, in a way, just, just sort of chopped off. But, but it's interesting to me that those limits, again, are, are being proposed in many respects by students. This is a theme that I think really applies to what we're talking about tonight, and I want to continue exploring this through other of the amendments to our Bill of Rights and other national political conversations, but I think there is a deficit of courage right now. People lack courage because they see what has become of cancel culture, people losing their jobs, people being shamed online and not be you know not wanting to not be able to support your family or be a productive member of society and i think that the the opposition the side that is really pushing a lot of these ideas are very effectively marshalling the fear factor with uh -huh. being able to silence people what do you think about that i think that's exactly right and i think there are kind of different degrees to that so for example in the first, what is it now, two months of the Biden administration, uh, the administration had put the stand-down order for the military. They were supposed to engage in some serious soul-searching and efforts to retrain and root out violent extremism and, and things like that. And part of that is restricting the ability of the soldiers to post things, to say things, but there's a, that's a particular environment where people go into the military and they know they don't have the same latitude. So it's one thing to see that there, but it's another thing to see people in the university or in working for a corporation. We can 
remember back to, uh, I think it was, was it Google, um, James Damore, yes. who, you know, just, just voicing unpopular beliefs is enough to, to get you shamed and censored and, and then even fired. And so I feel like we're sort of losing the ability to make distinctions, necessary distinctions. And as I said, it's one thing to have people in the military are going to have more restrictions. Someone who's a public official is going to perhaps have more um, or, or less latitude in terms of what they can say on the job and, and things like that. But but particularly in the university community and then just out there in the private sector, why is it that we are all facing this this climate of fear and um, just real concern that somebody's you know somebody's watching your every move your your every tweet your every posting on Facebook and, um, and you have to you can't ever make a mistake you can't ever really say what you think right and I don't think that's healthy for society because if people just push their opinions underground and you can't have genuine conversations with people about these issues that we in a republic decide, you know, we come together with our laws and we decide on policy. And if people can't have, you know, reasonable conversations without fear of getting fired, I mean, it's one thing, you know, someone says something controversial and people, uh, you know, disagree with them vehemently, there's no problem with that. But it's mm -hmm. the, the death threats and the you know boycotts mm -hmm. and the efforts to cancel people or have people fired at work or I mean we saw a little bit of this you know overseas too with Piers Morgan and uh, he you know had a strongly held opinion about the interview by Oprah Winfrey of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and then it rippled over to this shore sharon osborne stuck up for Piers morgan and then she left the show so it's it's the american show she was on so i think we're dealing with this from kindergarten through you know the very end of the work life and do you you recently testified before the senate judiciary committee on this very controversial equality act and I, I feel like the Democrats are very good at coming up with names for legislation that if anyone says they're opposed to the legislation, then just on the face of it, uh, people oppose it. Because who could possibly oppose an Equality Act, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and I think, unfortunately, that's one of the the problematic thing is because it's hard to have a serious discussion, because we're we're all experiencing this sense of, of um, the public, if not because of laws, but but because of this this climate of fear and intimidation. You know, it's fear on the part of the speaker, but it's intimidation and and sort of um, threats and and. And, and a, an exercise of power on the part of those who are claiming offense. And that's, it, it makes us poorer. So for example, there were, there were widely divergent views on the Equality Act. And yet because you have the framing, it's either equality or it's discrimination. Right. It's either you're on the side of justice or you're a bigot. I mean, how do you bridge that gap if you can't even have a conversation? No, and even even bringing up the topic can get you canceled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So explain a little bit what the Equality Act is, because I think a lot of people aren't familiar with the actual uh, parts of the statute, that's the bill that's being proposed. Yeah, and I'll say at the outset, you know, I, I think one place where we do agree, and this was something that I think almost every speaker at the... Uh, at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings brought up is that we all agree that people should be treated with respect, that all human beings have dignity, and that nobody wants to see unjust discrimination. We can agree on that. Right. But it's, it's what comes after that. And, what, and so what this law does is a couple of things. It, it really is such a stretch from previous civil rights laws. It, first of all, it expands the categories of protected 
classes or, or characteristics, the things that you cannot discriminate on the basis of. And the most contested of those is the idea of gender identity. So, so that's one thing. It expands the categories. But the, another thing it does is it expands the kinds of places and situations where American is all of a sudden going to be subject to anti-discrimination laws, these civil rights laws, and is risking a lawsuit. And that particularly affects people who are religious believers. So if you're running a, um, a homeless shelter and it's you divide the sleeping quarters by male and female in the evening, it's reasonable that as a person of faith, you want to to respect the differences that you believe in between. There are also practical considerations. You want to care for the women who may have, have uh, suffered from violence or, or things like that. But the Equality Act, if a woman comes in, in other words, his gender identity is as a, quote, woman, is his claim, his identity claim, takes priority over the free exercise of religion of that shelter owner. It takes priority over the privacy concerns of the of the females who are there and who, who are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is my space. I, I need a, a sex-segregated space because I don't feel, feel comfortable having someone who's a biological male sleeping in the bed next to me when I just fled a, a violent situation or, or whatever it may be. You know, so... So we see this clash between um, the the claim that gender identity trumps everything, and that it's just by making that claim of gender identity, the religious person can no longer uh, say what they think or or live out their beliefs because they're going to be risking a lawsuit. And in the same way, women. Can, are losing that ability to one define what it means to be a woman it's just we, we're losing control of that but but the right to have privacy and safe spaces and and um it's the safety factor that goes along with that and and so i forgot one important detail it's not a detail really it's a feature of the equality act is not that not just that it expands these categories of protected characteristics to include sexual orientation and gender identity. It's not just that it expands the idea of public accommodations beyond uh, restaurants and stadiums and things like that to include any gathering. It, it's also that it says if you're a religious believer and you are not willing to go along with and, and privilege gender identity over biological sex, you have lost, you are not going to be able to claim a religious freedom defense under the Religious Freedom Restoration, religious freedom restoration Act, which is a particular statute that Congress passed, bipartisan, you know, near unanimous, to protect the rights of religious believers in those situations where there's a burden that's placed on their faith and and they get to say hey wait a minute you know let's take this to court let's figure out what the best balance is but the equality act says if you're a religious believer you you can't even do that you can't even make that claim of religious freedom you can't even say hey wait a minute could we balance this could we could we assess the the burden versus the compelling interest it's it's just foreclosed so uh that is that is drastic, and that's one reason why there's so many religious organizations that oppose this, even though there may be other things that they might like about the bill. I think that is such an essential critique of this bill that people need to understand because this Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed by Congress in response to a Supreme Court case that uh, dealt with Native Americans and peyote use, and it was really a response from the, the Congress saying, no, we're really gonna protect religious freedom. Right. And it, was, it has been so essential over the last few years in many of these cases where courts are unwilling to protect uh, certain 
beliefs or activities under the First Amendment, but they uh, use this congressional statute to protect right. some of these activities. And I think this underscores the point, people who want to support the Equality Act might have the argument and say, well, let's pass it and we'll let the courts work it out because we want to be over-inclusive on making sure that we are a fair society and the courts will make sure that we don't overstep the bounds and intrude on First Amendment rights. I think that's what you're going to hear a lot of people saying. And the response to that, I think, is you can't rely on the courts to uh -huh. to take on all of these things. And what's with such a huge law that impacts, like you said, it just broadens all of these definitions and you're gonna have, I mean, we've already seen, um, you remember under the Obama administration, there was a Dear Colleague letter that uh -huh. talked about the um, K through 12 situation of locker rooms, bathrooms, sports teams, and right. there was a threat with this Obama administration Dear Colleague letter that if the schools across the nation, K kindergarten through 12, did, did not comply with what was in this letter, that their funding would be threatened. Uh -huh, uh -huh. There is no way for all of these schools across the country to litigate this. And, uh -huh. you know, as you know, the Supreme Court only takes up a handful of cases every year on any particular issue. And uh -huh. I think that really needs to be strongly pushed back on because uh, you can't you can't throw it out, out there, throw the spaghetti on the wall. These legislatures, re legislators really need to take this into account. And particularly looking at the um, Democrat legislators, not just Catholic, but of uh -huh. all faiths, that they're really opening a Pandora's box here that I think could have you know, really deleterious effects on belief across the board. Yeah, I and a couple of things on that. Uh, you know, you you described so well the um, how the Equality Act came to be, but I think one thing perhaps people don't um, realize or appreciate is over the past twenty years, it's been minority faiths that have benefited in a in a huge way by having the Religious Freedom Restoration Act available to them. So whether it's it's a police officer who is uh, of the Muslim faith and believes he needs to keep his beard, there, you know, there was a case there that litigated his ability to keep his beard and... Um, right. And, ...and force when they had dress code requirements that said otherwise. But, you know, for him to be able to do that, and same thing with Native American faiths, Orthodox Jews. So it's not just Christians. It's It's been the, the vast, all the various faiths we have in this country that have really have turned and said, wait a minute, you know, we're we're not saying if you're a believer, you get to do anything you want. What the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does is if your faith is burdened by a requirement, that means you get to say to the court, let's let's look at this. You know, the state has to show that they have a compelling interest, that they've chosen the least restrictive means once I show that my faith is burdened. So it's it's not just a green light that people of faith get to win every case all it does is, is is bring the matter to a um a more serious consideration of all the interests and all the parties so people of of minority face really to lose a lot I, and i think that's underestimated um i i think there are some other aspects here too with the equality act that it's um you mentioned girls sports and and things like that that even if the courts came along later and protected some of these rights that we know are going to be put at issue whether it's freedom of religion or women's um, ability to have female only sports and have that be a fair playing field and, and things like that even if the courts three or four years down the road eventually ruled in favor of those interests in the meantime, three or four years of 
cultural practice and legal practice that is completely the opposite. And that has its own chilling effect. That that changes things. So it's not good enough to just say, uh, as, as you had brought up, um, that we'll let the courts solve this because the law is a teacher. And the law is going to be teaching from day one that religion and, and people of faith can't live their faith out in the public square if it's going to conflict with with gender identity instead of instead of allowing this balancing this uh attempt to have a more respect conscience-based beliefs and and still make sure there's room for everyone to participate in society so it's it's a dangerous thing really to have a statute that is just simply from a lawyer's standpoint, it's, it's just written so broadly, so dangerously overbroad that the implications are going to be far-reaching, and it's you know it's, it's dangerous to be in that. That's going to play out. You you know that that a lot of people's uh, rights that they enjoy today are going to be affected that that law passes. I think that's a really powerful statement that you made, that the law is a teacher. So if you pass something like this and uh, people change their behavior in line with it, I mean, we have seen this over and over again where the courts have declined to rule on particular rights because of the practice that has changed, these cultural ideas that have changed. And I think about that, you're saying, you know, this is a huge sweeping law. And think about that in relation to Obamacare. And we ran into this with the First Amendment with Obamacare. So Obamacare didn't say anything about contraception or abortifacient, but the Obama administration, the HHS, came up with the contraceptive mandate, which directly impacted people of religious faiths beliefs about contraception and abortifacients and it ended up i think the little sisters of the poor went up to the supreme court two times Uh and i just think about that related to this bill how many opportunities that we can't even envision right now will come through regulations that are made through Democrat administrations and maybe Republican administrations, who knows, but uh, that will severely hamper people's rights. And, you know, I just think it's been such a bad year for people of faith. It's been a bad year for everyone. But you think of all the churches that have been shut down and, you know, the the controversies over, well, we're going to open casinos and gyms in Nevada, but we're not going to allow the churches to have the same rules. And I think it's a constant battle. And like you said, it's not just Christians or people of the Jewish faith. It's minority faiths, too. And they that's the entire point of the Bill of Rights is to protect minorities from uh-huh. the tyranny of the majority. Right. 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 Exactly. And, you know, I think of how we opened this conversation where we were talking about the, uh, the professor at, at Shawnee State university and him pushing back on the university saying you know i i need to be free or you can't compel me to speak you can't compel me to say certain words not just as a matter of free speech but in violation of my conscience and then now fast forward here to the equality act if the equality act is passed and enshrines into the law gender identity is a protected characteristic we are going to see that exact situation play out across the country because one of the claims or one of the um, one of the the legal rights that someone is going to be able to assert on the basis of gender identity in the wake of the Equality Act passing would be the right to uh, not be harassed or not be quote discriminated against, which can be turned around to say. They, have, they are going to claim a right to be called a certain pronoun. Well, if you're claiming a right to be called a certain pronoun, you're claiming a right to compel someone to call you that. Right. And so 
this is just going to multiply that problem. And, and at the same time, just that, that language thing, you know, Equality Act, if, if you're not for whatever this, this act puts into law, what does that make you? That makes you a discriminator. That right. makes you a and And again, it may take three or four years to untangle that and curb some of the bad drafting and the, the um, sweeping consequences of the act if it were to be passed. But in the meantime, are we as a culture really willing to, to brand anyone who simply believes there's a difference between biological males and biological females and that you should not be compelled to to say something you don't believe are we going to really all be on board with branding that person a discriminator and a bigot and, and not just person but a church <laughs> when you know for for history for thousands of years this has been an uncontested belief and yet the Equality Act can just undo that, and all of a sudden, those beliefs become uh, bigoted and, and unacceptable. Right. Look at the treatment of J.K. Rowling's, who is not conservative by any stretch of the imagination. Right. In fact, she is very vociferous in her liberal viewpoints about most things, but. Uh, uh, her detractors came down on her like a ton of bricks for, I think, essentially advancing support for the idea that is, you know, until 10 seconds ago was not really a controversial idea. Uh, and right. when you think about that in relation to lawsuits and the good of society and uh, how we're going to, I mean, I think for me, the definition of politics is how we order our lives together. So most of our lives are not spent with politics, right? It's we live in our families and our communities. Uh, but but when you start getting into those types of things, and then like you're saying, saying that certain churches are bigoted or, uh, you know, massive ones or minority religions, uh, uh -huh. You know, meaning they don't have a lot of adherence, not racial okay. minority. And okay. it it just creates, I think, a lot of stress in society that is not going to end well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of division. All of a sudden, we're, we're drawing lines and putting people on one side or another instead of doing what I think Americans over the course of our, our country's relatively short history have done really well work out these differences you know the civil war is obviously a, a you know a huge blight on that and, and the institution of slavery but there those are not the only controversies in our history we've had many that needed to political process but also in our towns and in our communities and in our neighborhoods that rely on the ability of people to speak their mind freely to try to understand better what the other person Point of view is and to, to try to come to someone the other you don't get to speak you know your your views are beyond the pale i i think we're we're setting up a situation that is not healthy yes and yet the same people who are advancing this are the ones I think, screaming from the rooftops about how divisive everything is and how polarized everything is. And right. a fun fact, my first pro bono case out of law school, uh, I was representing a Native American who was incarcerated in Greenville Correctional Center in Southern Virginia, which is also where death row in Virginia is housed. Oh, wow. And I will never forget going there to meet with him, my client, to talk to him about his case, which was about getting accommodation for his religious practice at Greenville Correctional Center. And ah. he was not on death row. Uh, but I remember just walking in that prison and the loud gates slamming behind me and there no there's no carpeting it's all concrete and so when those gates slam it like goes to the very core of your being and you just have this sense of oh my gosh you know this is terrifying and to be locked in here and and thinking about you know people who are in that situation and 
we are a humane society and we want to make sure that people have the comfort of faith, whatever their faith is, when uh-huh. they're in these situations. So you had a great example of the police officer who was Muslim who won the right to uh, keep his religious beard even though it violated the dress code. And so I just, I can't believe, thinking back to that experience right out of law school and thinking about that particular case that you raised, that people really think that it's a good idea to go in this direction of squelching people's religious faith. It, it's just astonishing to me. Yeah, and I... I... That as our as our country's religious faith has declined, I really think, especially among younger people, there's a misunderstanding of what a conscience-based belief is. So for that Muslim officer, he felt like in his relationship with God, he needed to keep this beard. That was part of him pleasing the God he served. Right. And and the state traditionally in our country. The state has understood, people have understood that that relationship with God, the the beliefs that we have, the deep conscience-based beliefs, because of our relationship with God, are prior to the Constitution. They're right. prior to the laws of the state. And so there's been a healthy respect. And I was... Um, just born in the in the 60s but I remember my parents talking about um and even in the 70s kind of looking back at the pictures of conscientious objectors people who who felt because they were opposed to the war in Vietnam they could not go and fight and whatever you thought of decision people understood that you compel someone to do something they really think is deeply wrong and not just think. My God says, I can't do that. And that we as a culture are better off when we respect such deeply held beliefs and we don't try to compel people to do something that is um, goes against every fiber of being, even no matter how how much we disagree with them. And I grew up in a family where my father was a Marine and and uh, I've got brothers who served and, and things like that. So, I'm, you know, I, I, I could understand if someone said, uh, you know, they, they disliked the idea of someone being a conscientious objector to that war. And yet we would respect that and we would fight for that because respecting that freedom of conscience is so much a part of who we are and and the whole founding of our country, realizing that the state doesn't give and take away that right to religious freedom. The state has to respect it. Right, and how much of that was part of the discussion during the Cold War when we talked about godless communism? And I think part of why Pope John Paul II made such an impression on me was because he had come from Poland, occupied Poland, dealing with uh, the Soviet occupation. He had so much courage. And reading George Weigel's biography of him, where he had people in the Vatican essentially working for him, people who were professed to the church, and yet they were working against him on behalf of the Soviets. And he had so much courage and he had a you know phrase, be not afraid. I, I think yeah. that was one of his, such a courageous thing to say. And he would say that to the Polish people that were suffering greatly. You know, th- there was a solidarity movement and there was so much opposition and uh, Christians and priests were being murdered for speaking out in Poland. And he he wasn't just saying it to his people, the Polish people. He was saying, be not afraid to the entire world. Right. And he was able to work with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan to help bring down communism. And I just I find that so inspiring for our time, because I think I mean, you have so much courage. I think a lot of people 
don't have that level of courage. And your father was such a luminary at Notre Dame, and he inspired so many generations of lawyers who I think have that courage to speak out against what they see is happening in the country that is going to affect everybody. And I was wondering if you would tell just a little bit of how you decided to go into law and what what kind of animates you in this uh, controversy? Yeah, good questions. Um, in, one of the things that I remember growing up, and as you said, my dad was a lawyer and, and he taught constitutional law. I remember him representing sort of unpopular groups within the culture at different junctures because it, he was representing their constitutional rights whether it was to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, things like that, because he believed so strongly that we need to, as a culture, make room for that, and that people need to have the courage of their convictions. But that courage to stand up is um, comes, one, when you believe strongly, but two, when you've got other people around who, who respect that and say, you know what, I, I oppose your, your idea, but... We're going to make room for you to say that, and I think one of the uh, one of the problems that I see with kind of the, the younger generation is I, I think again that lack of personal familiarity with with faith and maybe a misunderstanding of conscience. I feel like it's being reduced to uh, a conscience based belief is being reduced to just your opinion versus my opinion. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know. Well, of course you ought to change because you want to be on the right side of history. And and that just, it's a very superficial view that fails to understand the depth of religious faith, of conscience, that the relationship between the person that exceeds the state, give it, the state can't take it away, the state needs to respect it, and that... Uh, you know, we fight for that for all, and that's that's been part of what America is about. So, for my own um, my own interest, sort of in the religious freedom sphere and the the uh, free speech sphere, are kind of intertwined. Partly, as I said, because my dad did a lot of constitutional law and worked on what were some unpopular causes in the early seventies. He was a pro life lawyer. So he filed numerous amicus, testified before the Senate and all that stuff, really arguing that we needed to respect the dignity of the um, and recognize as a matter of constitutional law that, that the child is a person who has rights. And that was, you know, that was an unpopular position yes. in, in many respects. But And it's funny, it's sort of gaining more ground. There's at least, at least in the academic intellectual circles, there's more discussion about that, partly because with the sonogram, it's it's less contested. We, we know who's in there. Right. You know, we, can, right. we can see. Um, but seeing him being willing to do that, I think was really inspiring to me so that when I, I went into law that I wanted to be able to use legal skills, the analysis to, um, to truths that I think matter in terms of the country that we are. And so my husband um, many years ago founded the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty because he, he was years ago, we never imagined that we would be seeing the kinds of controversies we're seeing today. The really? No, the controversies back then were about whether you can have a, a you know, a nativity display yeah. in the public square, right. but these basic core beliefs, can you still say that you believe that marriage is between a male and a female, or are you going to, is that somehow beyond the pale now to even believe that if the law goes in a different direction or to believe that we're created male and female and that as a matter of faith the Jewish um, the rabbi should be able to say and we're going to respect that division and and conduct our, our um, worship separately you know, are we going to respect that or are we going to say, no, there's no difference between male and female and, and it doesn't matter what you believe, you have to you have to conform. And 
so a lot of my work is is really trying to um, help people one understand the truth about who we are as human beings the difference between male and female and and respect for the family and and things like that but to encourage everyone wherever you are in terms of these issues to to be willing to stand up and, and speak the truth to say what you believe and to make room for others to say you know to to be free to express their beliefs as well and not to give in to this culture of ideological conformity which was the phrase used by the sixth circuit in that case that we you know started talking about beginning of our conversation that the state can't impose an ideological conformity you know a set of beliefs that everyone has to buy to and must speak only those things that support those views and otherwise you're silenced or you're not allowed to participate in in the functions of society I, that's to me that's incompatible a free society and I would hope there's there's many more Americans who believe that as well in spite of whatever underlying differences we might have about particular issues I think that is a great point and maybe that's what the whole point of this conversation comes down to is that Anyone who's listening to this who may agree with uh, all of these points uh, for the Equality Act, they may think that um, transgender people should be able to be addressed uh, by the pronoun they want to be addressed by. They may believe that they should be allowed to play on the sports team that they want to. But maybe people who have those opinions after listening to this can understand that it's important for our culture and our society and our rule of law, because the law is a teacher, as you said, to make space for the people who don't agree with that and don't want to be compelled to say those things and don't want to uh, have the disadvantages of not being able to live out their, their religious faith. And maybe that is the important uh, takeaway from this conversation is that you can be 100% down with that agenda and yet, and yet, and yet still understand the vital point of allowing people to not be forced into conformity with that view, even if you think it's right. Right, right, right. We used to celebrate that kind of difference, but... Uh... I don't know. <laughs> not so much. Not so much anymore. No. Uh, so what do you see? We've got a little bit left of the Supreme Court term. Uh, they usually release the most controversial opinions in June. What do you see coming up uh, the end of this term? And do you see anything going into the new year that people should be keeping an eye out for First Amendment issues? Well, there's a big case that is up there right now, and it's a case in Catholic Charities and their adoption services in Philadelphia. And Catholic Charities had, had served along with 30 other different agencies in Philadelphia. These kids and unite them with, with parents, but... The Catholic Adoption Agency, because as a matter of faith, they have the deep conviction that children are best raised by a, a mother and a father. They chose to place children with um, married husbands and wives, and the state of or the city of Philadelphia decided that that was no longer acceptable. Even though no no gay couples or lesbian couples were turned away. There were plenty of other adoption agencies to serve them. No one actually, uh, no same-sex couples actually came to Catholic Charities and said, we want you to do our adoption and got turned away. Nobody got turned away. And and yet the, the city of Philadelphia came in and said, uh-uh, you believe the wrong things because you will not adhere to the belief that there's no difference between a same-sex couple and uh, a couple that's a husband and wife we're not going to contract with you anymore you're we're business and and the effect of that 
for children. So you have um, an agency that specializes in in playing special needs kids and groups and, and things like that. And yet the state is is instead, or and by state I mean the the uh, Philadelphia um, city government, right. seem to be more interested in pushing its viewpoint, an ideological viewpoint about marriage onto Catholic charities or punishing them if they were unwilling to uh, to embrace the the preferred viewpoint. And again, that's we're poorer because of that. When out a perfectly you know good charitable organization, if we, we drive them out of the public square because they don't believe the right things, we're trying to force them to change their beliefs. So that case, the Fulton case, will be decided, uh, and I expect it'll probably come down towards the end of the term, maybe in June, and you never want to predict with the Supreme Court, but uh, my hope is, my sense is, it's likely to uphold the religious freedom, because that is, it's so foundational to to our beliefs, and the uh, members of the court seem increasingly willing to really um, back that up in terms of their their decisions, so that's that's a key one. That is, and then I think there's some continuing controversy with the baker out in Colorado that took his case up to the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, and the court, the Supreme Court, gave him a victory, but it was not a very robust uh-huh. opinion that they handed down in support of his ability to, you know, bake cakes and also not violate his faith. Um, But he has really been targeted by people who have, uh, I I believe he was asked to make a transgender transition cake and then some sort of Satan cake too. Um, So it seems like, gosh, people are just really... uh, being nasty in pursuit of this political correctness. So so what do you think will happen with him, given that the Supreme Court, the last time they heard something similar related to this particular baker, uh, didn't um, give such a robust defense of his First Amendment rights? Right. I, you know, I hope they'll do the right thing. I'm not quite as confident. But I, I think, again, if we step back and just look at it with, with some logic, if you were hiring someone to be to paint your portrait, and they just didn't want to. Would you really want to compel them to paint your portrait? <laughs> what no. do you think is going on? You know, when you're dealing with individuals and you're, you want to hire them to do something, it's important to respect the reasons why they decline when they're rooted in a First Amendment. It's not rooted in prejudice. It's rooted in a First Amendment belief that he cannot celebrate certain kinds of of events so just as he's not going to put a message on the cake that glorifies satan that that violates his his belief and you know we shouldn't want to compel him to do that no a civilized society and in the same way if he doesn't want to celebrate the the gender as a matter of faith well don't compel him you buy a birthday cake from him instead or something but um, and, and he'll sell you a birthday cake. Yes. What he's saying is, I just can't be part of that that celebration that you're having. I'm not going to get in the way of it. <laughs> you go do your thing. But but don't try to compel me to be part of this in violation of my beliefs. And I, I think maybe that's the word to just kind of highlight here is, is the issue of compulsion and compelling others to say things they don't believe, to do things that violate their conscience, that in a society that should be um, across the line, that that should be too far. And that surely we can agree on that, that we don't want to compel others to violate their their, um, deeply held beliefs. So to wrap this up, Mary, can you give us a message of hope this Holy Week 2021 for our First Amendment rights? Well, it is America, and we still have the right to, to say what we believe and to, to worship 
um, worship our God, and, and this is a holy week. And so I'm I'm just grateful to be here, to be an American, to have the state recognizing these freedoms. And even though much of this is contested right now, you know, I, I do have faith that Americans are, are good people. And um, so I'm going to pray and, and worship this week and be grateful for the blessings that we have. Well, I hope your family has a wonderful Holy Week. And if people want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go look? Um, They can look me up at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, or if they're interested in the work that I do on gender ideology and the human person, you can look at personandidentity.com. Is there anything else you want to share as we close down this chat room? Just saying... Thank you for the work you do and and just for your delightful um, delightful way of opening up conversations. So I look forward to seeing what you cover next, and uh, I think there will be some great conversations coming out of it. Excellent. Well, I hope to have you back and have a wonderful Holy Week and a happy Easter, Mary. Thank you. You too, Gail.